This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Big thank you to Monique Sabir for the last three hours of Out on the Patio. She'll be back next week between four and seven and we'll be listening wrapped for all the great new local music as always. Welcome to Bite Into It. You're with Joe and Vanessa this evening. Hey, Joe. Hi. Great to have you here. Lovely um, to be here. Coming up tonight, we are speaking to a pair of stellar women. One is Eileen Ormsby. You might know her as the investigative journalist and author of Silk Road. She's here to speak about her latest book, The Darkest Web. We'll also be speaking to Rowena Murray about the click list. And we'll keep that a bit of a mystery until we get to that segment. But do stay around to find out about that. Um, in news this week, what's going on, Joe? So the Recording Industry Association of America, of America have recently released their 2017 year-end report. They're reporting that for the first time since 2011, physical media, including CDs and vinyl, are outselling digital downloads. So sales of physical media are falling, however, but just not as much as digital downloads. And so it's really the music streaming services that have taken over. Uh, last year, the RIAA reported that the music industry saw st- streaming services bring in almost two-thirds of their revenue. So this is an increase of 43% on 2016. And um, the streaming services have really taken over and website The Verge are reporting that a new type of subscription model called limited tier paid subscription on um, streaming services are on the up. Instead of paying $10 a month, Amazon, for example, are offering a package where you pay something like $4 a month. Amazing. And But the subscription is limited to playing on something like just one Echo speaker. I think it's so interesting at this point because I do really see streaming services have taken over with a lot of my friends. However, I feel that if maybe some of the um, music organisation services, like the library services, like iTunes, if they had responded to user feedback sooner and been a little bit easier to use and people didn't have to spend so many hours reorganising their collections, then... it would have been harder for streaming services to take off. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I think there's a massive frustration for me still about the gaps in your collection about what's available on the streaming services. If you're a real music lover and you get into honing a niche, you know, some people really just opt out of of those platforms and I worry that, you know, they're just going to be off the playlist for a lot of new listeners. It's the beauty of things like... Uh, Bandcamp and SoundCloud and those more independent. Yeah, yeah. I rely on SoundCloud a lot. Actually, that's yeah. that's one of my favourite spaces to stick around. Uh, I. Is what about a, you? What? Yeah. Uh, look, one thing that caught my eye was a bit of a, a funny article about unmanned drones. They have they've now outnumbered light aircraft in the US. I think it's significant because it's only recently that the US have required people to register drones. And they've taken an interesting approach. Uh, They've made registration very cheap, but the punitive, um, you know, like the the fines and things, if you get caught without registered drones um, when they're flying around, then that's uh, quite high fines, like in the $250,000 sort of mark for for egregious offences. So uh, if drones are now... um, bought and if they're sold by the initial owners or given as gifts, um, new owners have to register them as well. So they're being quite 
rigorous about this. They're treating them a bit like cars. Is it an easy process? It seems like it's a very easy process. Registration costing five US dollars for three years. Um, And there was a waiver period as well, like a grace period for people to register for free. Um, They introduced this in December last year. And it's just amazing the numbers. So they topped 325,000 registered drone owners and there are 320,000 registered manual aircraft, um, sorry, manned aircraft uh, people on their books. And even more significant, I think, is that drone owners can often own more than one drone. So this is a ton of drones out there. Obviously, they take up a lot less space than... um, than light aircraft, than registered manned aircraft. Do we have any similar thing over here? We do. Uh, We have sort of responsibilities on how to fly and uh, I think it's all still being done state by state here. I'm not actually up to date on the the regulations in Australia, but I should chase that up. Uh, I'd be interested to hear the numbers in Australia. I imagine we'd have more too. They're just, they're so useful in so many ways and I think... um, we're seeing agricultural applications, people trying to find uses for them uh, commercially in terms of delivery, uh, emergency response. You know, there's a lot of implications for emergency fire management, for example. Oh, I've been hearing stories of um, search and rescue using yeah. them um, around coastlines. It's just tremendous. And then all of the artistic or the scientific research applications, there are archaeological applications. So I really don't think we've seen the limits of what drones will be used for yet. And it's a very exciting space. Uh, it's 7.08. Let's go to a track because we really want to get into our very interesting interviews this evening. And we'll be back with Eileen Ormsby uh, speaking about the darkest web. We've just been joined in the studio by a favourite of ours, Eileen Ormsby. She is a lawyer, an author, a freelance journalist based in Melbourne. And we last spoke to her on Byte in 2015 about her first book, Silk Road. Her approach heralds a new wave of gonzo journalism. And tonight she joins us to discuss her latest true crime book, The Darkest Web. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. It's so great to have you back in here. And um, I guess it's a challenging book to talk about because you talk about such um, such confronting topics in it. And we really, we don't want to spoil the book for people because it is really a very gripping read and there's a lot of reveals as you go through it. So what I'd love to speak with you about is a little bit about um, some of the basics for our audience, like... What is the darkest web? We might start there. Well, the dark web is a um, what we call the group of websites that can only be accessed using a special software called Tor. Uh, you cannot get to it if you don't have the special software. You can't Google these these sites, and uh, they are uh, signified by being uh, .onion rather than .com or .org. So TOR stands for The Onion Router. We've spoken about it a little bit on the show. Uh, My general experience is that a lot of people I speak to have never been on the dark web. Uh, What's your experience? Uh, Well, my experience is um, that everybody I know has been on the dark (laughs) web. Uh, Look, it's it's got a lot of good uses. If you just don't, you know, especially nowadays um, with all these revelations coming out on just how much Google and Facebook are tracking you, you can use something like Tor to still be online but not have every move tracked. So anyone that wants any sort of privacy or anonymity uh, is can use it just to visit regular websites. And that website will know it's had a visitor, but it won't know who that visitor is or where they've come from. So there's a lot of good uses for it. 
the so, only so, yeah yeah so then the flip side of that obviously is that for some people um they want to be anonymous for nefarious purposes. That's absolutely correct. I mean, the robust technology that was developed by the US military to look after military secrets is perfect for uh, criminal activity. Yeah. Uh, on the plus side, I guess we see a lot of activists around the world and particularly in uh, countries which don't have robust democracies being drawn to these platforms. When you first got interested in the dark web, uh, having a legal background yourself, uh, did you go in there with any utopian ideals about what this platform would be? Oh, look, I think so. Look, when I uh, I was a lawyer in my past uh, life and I was working in London for one of the Golden Circle for the One Percenters when the global financial crisis hit and then I had a crisis, existential crisis myself and that's when I heard about uh, Silk Road which was this new online drugs marketplace that was offering a uh, safer way for people to have drugs and along with that was Bitcoin, which was developed as, you know, a screw you to the banks when um, during the global financial crisis as a way of giving currency back to the people. So that was what really interested me. Once I started uh, uh, researching Silk Road and writing about it, I found that it was this really robust community of people who um, had interest in privacy, who had interest in taking drugs, obviously, but they were... Uh, a really engaged philosophical community and it was really interesting so it was easy to stay there. I think that's something about this book is that you take a topic which for most of us it's one step removed most of us don't hop on the dark web and don't you know aren't that rigorous about you know being tracked online and and are trying to um, you know balance our interests and then we're always presented with a very fear-based um, narrative around this sort of space online and to jump into Silk Road, first of all, and then into the darkest web is to also be drawn into some of the interesting characters and relationships between um, different people, you know, eking out space on almost like a frontier. How did you uh, start to feel about uh, the communities that you were coming across in these spaces? Well, the communities were really quite fascinating. The idea of people being, how people uh, regulate themselves when they do have that total anonymity, how they build trust, it's uh, quite a, an interesting thing to watch. And I got to know people obviously through their handles, their uh, usernames, and I actually found that the the communities, the forums on the dark web, there were fewer trolls and, um, you know, I got less hate on them than I do on Reddit. Um, so they they really are w really well self-regulated and they have to build that trust because all they have is their username. So they need to build up trust behind that username and you don't get that by being a dick. Yeah, absolutely. So the book structure is very well thought out. I I was reading and you were speaking about certain elements of the web and then as you went through, uh, things would get more serious, the topics would get more confrontational, um, the violence and the horror aspects of the extremes of what humans will talk about and uh, potentially do or at least give the impression that they're doing was, was really um, compelling. But also, I don't think I could have faced the last section of the book without walking through the first. Um, did you 
take in all of these things all at once or, you know, did you sort of work with an editor and go, how can we get people psychologically through these tough topics? It actually just fell into place for me. So I, I uh, divided up into the dark, darker and darkest. And like you say, it gets more and more intense as you go through. And most people will be able to handle dark and darker. A lot of people might not even get through darkest because it does take you into the absolute depths of depravity and, um, you know, sometimes you just think, I don't want to be on this world anymore when you read that sort of stuff. Dark and darker, I think most people can actually handle. But it was just, it just really fell into place. As I was writing it, it suddenly twigged to me that this is how I could do it. It, uh, it stunned me, though, that while the book is quite confrontational that way, there, there were still moments that I burst out laughing and usually these were driven by, you know, the absurdity of some situations or just the charm of some of the characters. And not all these characters had the best ethics. Um, did you find yourself being surprisingly charmed by some of the criminal elements that you were engaging with? Yeah, I really did. Like, some of them are really quite funny and they all they have is their words. You know them through the forum. So you get to know them by their words and their turn of phrase and it... it and when when they want something from you or they're uh, interested in talking to you, yeah, they can be really, really charming. Of course, I, I wound up meeting quite a few of them in real life mm. after they got arrested, some of them in prison, some of them after they're stint to prison, some are still waiting to go to prison. Um, but, yeah, there's there's other characters in there that I still only know through their handles online, but I have formed quite a relationship with them. So you couldn't write a book like this without getting in the mud with everybody and being in the space that they are using as their platform for their their services and, and things. So, you know, you have to have your own identity there. Um, what's interesting is that uh, increasingly a lot of people on the dark web, they know who you are. Many of them have read or heard of uh, your first book, The Silk Road, uh, the Silk, uh, Silk Road and lots of them were very complimentary about that. They thought, oh, here's a journalist who really gets it. Uh, so you had some reputation going in. How did it feel when people started to try and sully your reputation and um, embroil you uh, and, and almost, you know, um, uh, almost sick law enforcement onto you? Are you talking about Eura in Dhaka? I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about almost the Bisa Mafia and, and yeah. Eura trying to, trying to you know, blacken your name and say you were in on his plans from the start. Oh, look, it, it would have been worse if Eura was smarter. But <laughs> as it was, he's, um, you know, he's he's got street smarts. He's very uh, sharp in a lot of ways and he's very good at making money. But he wasn't very good at, at uh, pretending to be me or, um, you know, convincing people that... Uh, I was someone that I wasn't, uh, fortunately for me. Although, you know, um, he did manage to convince the uh, National Crime Authority that someone else was him, which was quite crazy. But, uh, yeah, I, d I didn't mind him too much sullying my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still here with us and that's a good thing. <laughs> um, there were a lot of... Uh, interactions with law enforcement in many different countries and at many different levels um, anecdotally throughout throughout the book as obviously, you know, people were running around trying to catch up with criminals operating with new technologies. Uh, how did you feel about how well-equipped any of the, the law enforcement you came across might be to, to tackle crime as it is in the dark web? 
I generally found law enforcement were not as open with me and not as nice to me as the uh, criminal element of the dark web. <laughs> uh, so oh. they, I found them to be relatively hostile most of the way through. Certainly when I... Uh, tried to warn the Australian Federal Police about certain things, um, they were not that interested. There's other times when, for instance, um, told the FBI about something that we thought uh, they didn't do anything about it, but it turned out that they actually did. They just weren't telling yeah. myself or um, the other person that was talking to them. Um, Homeland Security were very interested in meeting with me last time I went to the USA and that was the most uncomfortable 30 minutes lunch I've ever had, I think. Wow. But uh, overall, it, it, you know, it hasn't been too bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you really, you're very fair to the people in your story. I guess, you know, it's, it's easy to slip into this is just a story and you have to keep bringing yourself back to these are real people living real lives and... Um, how how did it feel when you're trying to write a book and you know you want to get something out of this and yet you're dealing with real life and you have no idea where it's going to go? Uh, look, there's a lot of stories I haven't told mm -hmm. uh, for that very reason that I don't want to harm people mm -hmm. that don't deserve to be harmed. Um, and I've forgotten the question now. <laughs> I guess I guess it's just you know how do you, how do you um, how do you plan a book when you don't know how things are going to end and how do you find the narrative that um, and, and be so fair to everyone involved? Uh, look, again, it sort of just fell into place. Like one of the murders that's central to the book hadn't even taken place when I first pitched the book to my, um, my publisher. And then as I was writing, all of a sudden this thing happened uh, that was so central to everything and I was doing. so shocking and it brings it you know, it brings it all home and I really, yeah, I don't want to spoil that. So I want people to be able to, enjoy is not the right word is I the know, interesting thing I about know. this book. That's really difficult as like people, yeah, I mean, people do sort of enjoy it, but it's not the right word, especially um, you probably enjoy the first half, but yeah. perhaps not all of it. I think that's it. I mean, it really does give you an insight into a lot of spaces that many of us will never experience and we're quite happy not to. But then it's also interesting to know who you find at those edges. Did you find anything in common, criminal or not, with the sorts of people who were attracted to that space? Look, it's there's so many different sorts of people that, like drug users are not a homogenous group, so you've got the whole uh, gamut of people that were in the uh, dark net market space. And Still now, uh, you have people that are... You've got these little uh, niche sites that are just for psychedelic psychonauts and they're little corners of rainbows <laughs> and sunshine and everybody loves each other and hugs each other and would never do anything to harm anybody. And then you've got these other markets where people are selling, you know, fraud-related items, um, stolen identities, stolen credit cards and that sort of thing. So you've got that whole gamut there. In the other uh, communities, you know, the frightening part of the child exploitation communities is that some of the people that have been arrested for doing the most heinous crimes in the world, you'd never know if you could be working next to them. They are, you know, there's a guy in um, the UK, Matthew Felder, who's just been jailed for 32 years, um, was involved in one of the sites that I talk about. And according to all reports, he was a funny, goofy guy. Everyone liked him. He had a girlfriend and uh, no one could believe the incredibly heinous things that he was doing online. So I guess we should let our audience know maybe the range of, of 
crimes and sort of topics covered in the book, which might give them a bit of preparation for, for what they'd find out about. Sure. Well, Dark is about the dark net markets, which started with Silk Road and the utopian sort of drug market where, uh, you know, the founder wouldn't list anything, the purpose of which was to harm or defraud another person. Then it goes into what happened after Silk Road and the new markets, which uh, were run by organised crime and, and didn't have nearly as many morals. And that's the part, that's part one. Part two goes into the um, hitman for hire sites and follows one particular death in the USA that was ordered on one of these sites. Part three moves into the much more gruesome uh, part of the dark web and the part where most people don't want to go, which includes um, child exploitation sites, but the, the very pointy end of those, something called Hurtcore which is um, a fetish for people who want to inflict pain or even torture on another human being that is not a willing participant to it and mostly involves children. Yeah, it's it's really shocking stuff and it's certainly not for everybody. No. Um, and for anyone who is, you know, thinking about any issues... Uh, that this topic might bring up, uh, I want to remind you that the lifeline number is 131114 because we know that this is a, a pretty sensitive topic. Um, so to take us out of the depths of that, uh, there were some surprising Australian connections that came up throughout the book. Did you expect that there would be uh, many people you'd write about in Australia who would end up being uh, featured as characters in this true crime book? Well, certainly the dark net markets, we were always the drug markets. We were always the highest per capita users of the drug markets of anyone in the world. Yeah, that, that figure still shocks me. <laughs> per, per capita. I mean, USA and UK are the, the top users, but we are third and, yeah, we are the, the highest rate of users. And it's not shocking because we have otherwise very expensive, very difficult to get low quality drugs and the dark net markets just may change that for people. So it's not that surprising. So it's really economic imperatives there. And as far as in the Hurtcore space, um, I, I was very surprised, but that could partly be because uh, our task force, our Queensland task force, Task Force Argos, is leading the world in capturing these predators. So, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that several of them were Australian, I guess, seeing as we are leading the way there. And they are doing an amazing job just this week. Um, it's come to 100 kids that they've saved from these Yeah, these I saw people. you tweeted out something about that. Yeah. Actually, um, Eileen's Twitter is a fascinating read. If you're interested in what's going on uh, online, then you should really check it out. It's um, at Eileen Ormsby. And yeah, it's very informative. So... You have now written two amazing books about these illicit spaces that I, even I'm, you know, nervous about heading on to online and I'm not nervous about a lot of things. Uh, I always think someone's going to look me up and be like, why did she need to go there <laughs> like, and figure things out? But uh, I wonder, you also, you also write about techno-utopian ideals and, you know, engage with people about ideas uh, about you know, using the internet to do things in ways that are different to how, you know, most of us interact online but aren't necessarily evil. Do you think you'll ever write a book that is about the techno-utopian sort of ideals and how they play out in the dark web? 
Oh, one, I don't know, but one thing I've certainly... I, I don't want to go any darker, that's for sure. I don't yeah. think there is any darker. That's what I was thinking after reading this. I'm like, well, you, you can't chase this. No. So the only way is towards the light. Well, the, uh, one one thing I've just been vaguely thinking about is uh, there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, the Bitcoin bros, which are the Bitcoin new billionaires and millionaires, and some of them are have uh, apparently bought this massive tract of uh, land in Puerto Rico that they're going to create basically their own new country and they were going to call it Poetopia, but apparently that means something uh, not very nice, so they're going to call it something else. But I thought I might follow something like that. It could be a bit bit lighter. It always ends well, those sort of stories, <laughs> you know, creating a new land. It's nothing like a cult at all ever. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Bitcoin, a lot of people already say it's a cult, so yeah. oh, crypto cults in general. Oh, I checked out my account this week and it's it's uh, vastly lower than it was when I checked around December time. Oh, so it's been, yes, it's, isn't that all of us? It's been a hilarious experiment <laughs> and uh, it's been great fun. I've just, I'm just leaving it in there. It's just, you know, my yep. little $5 investment in case anyone gets any excited ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it depends when that $5 was. Well, yeah, you know. That could little... be a house if it was invested it, in 2011. It certainly wasn't 2011, <laughs> I'll tell you that. We're, we're looking at a, a Netflix subscription for a while. That's, that's what it's going to cover. Uh, Eileen, The Darkest Web is a massive achievement and it's also fantastic to read these sort of stories from an Australian perspective, which is very relatable. Um, when you look at uh, the current gun debate in the States, did you think about some of the, the weapons and discussions that sort of came up in the dark web and how different that was in the States versus everywhere else? Not a, not a lot. Well, the discussion certainly, because it's all about, oh, you know, our, our God-given right to bear arms and all that sort of thing. But the actual trade of weapons on the dark web is not that big. Yeah. Like, that is still something that is pretty much done through organised crime, I think, and not mm. through your mailman. Mm. Good to know. Uh, look, I highly recommend The Darkest Web. It's by Eileen Ormsby, O-R-M-S-B-Y. It's by Alan and Unwin and is available in all good bookstores. Just go out there, support some local talent and get a hold of this book and get a bit informed. I'd really love to talk about it with some people and then we can hug each other and just be like, okay, everything's going to be good again. <laughs> Eileen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, look, we would like to welcome to studio at the moment Rowena Murray. She is a board member of Vic ICT for Women and she's here to speak about a particular initiative that they've launched this year. It's called The Click List. Welcome, Rowena. Thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, some of our listeners might not know what Vic ICT for Women is. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I sure can. Vic ICT for Women is a not-for-profit organisation, uh, Victorian-based as the name would suggest, but we're all about supporting women in their tech careers, essentially from cradle to grave. And we've got a program for every age group, right through from um, Go Girl, Go For It, which is about showcasing the latest technologies to preteen girls to get them excited about careers in tech, right through to graduate programs and then helping, you know, supporting women getting back into the workload, uh, workforce, excuse me, after, you know, leaving for kids and that kind of thing. So we're really here to help maximise the diversity of women in their tech careers. That's fantastic to hear because mm. while I see a lot of initiatives that are aimed at young girls and young women, I 
don't actually see a lot for people who are mid-career and mm. considering how many careers we have, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. So true. How did you first get involved in the organisation? Um, a girlfriend of mine um, sat on the board for a really long time and she developed this very, very cool program called Bold Moves, which was just extraordinary and it ran for over two years and it basically landed us with a huge piece of data that just showed, sadly, how sexist the tech industry actually is right, right to the core. Yeah. So uh, I love that you're a data-informed organisation. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Definitely. We're such nerds about this. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the click list. Uh, like most ideas, the click list came out of a moment of sheer frustration. Um, I was at an industry event about 12 months ago and uh, while the event itself made a really big effort to have um, equal representation among you know gender um, groups among their speakers, the, the male speakers who stood up were almost all completely sexist in their approach to their presentations to the point one stood up, put a photo of his team on the wall and was like, we're so proud of our diverse team, it's amazing look, we've got 25 programmers, we're really great. And myself and a friend were sitting in the front row and actually burst out laughing. Yes, it was a very racially diverse team, but there wasn't a single woman in it. And he absolutely did not get it. So um, it is just this constant thing where you get white middle-aged men sitting on a panel talking about tech issues that affect half the population and you know they're they're simply not the right people to be doing it and the thing that frustrates me most is that there are so many amazing people full stop doing incredibly diverse expert things within the tech space and no one knows they exist outside of their immediate bubble. So the idea was born, let's make it really easy for event organisers to have a genuinely diverse, you know, speaker group so that there's visibility and there's share of voice and there's true diversity in the expressions, you know, and, and the commentary that comes out. So the click list is essentially a free online resource. Um, so anyone can just hop online, theclicklist.com.au, and they can nominate someone or they can find someone. So it's very early days and we are processing literally hundreds of nominations, which is so exciting. So stay tuned over the next few weeks. It's going to load up big time. It's fantastic. Uh, I know that people have tried a lot of things to fix the uh, the very visible issue of all-male panels mm. and just, you know, a quite obvious lack of diversity mm. on some topics. Uh, there's many reasons why diversity would be a great thing to go for. Uh, do you think that the, the initiatives like, you know, having people say no to being on panels without any diversity have had any impact? They absolutely do. We've been contacted by both sponsors as well as major event organisers who say we've we've actually ha- run into trouble this year, um, which is actually a fantastic thing because so many speakers are now standing up and saying that panel setup's not good enough. I'm withdrawing so that you can give my spot to someone else. And there there is it's absolutely working. There is a little bit of a panic, but equally um, the fact that we've been approached and not the other way around. We haven't even started marketing the click list to the booking organisations yet and they're approaching us, which is just fantastic. So the industry is ripe for change and they're just crying out for something like this. And have you had any um, anecdotal comments from people about why as women they might find it uh, more difficult to get exposure at events? 
I, it really does come down. It, it's a it's a two pronged thing, and it comes from sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. I've definitely found through the process of going through nominations is that when someone's nominated by someone else, the profiles that come through are amazing. It's rich with qualifications and YouTube video links, and um, you know, attached their research papers and all this really cool stuff. When people self-nominate, there's usually about a third the content. So in, in a lot of cases, we're women aren't good at promoting themselves in the first place. They're simply not providing the same information and they're certainly not going the, I am the expert in my field. Um, so from so one side of the coin is that um, I'm definitely seeing firsthand that women are less likely to put themselves forward with confidence and say, I'm an absolute legend at this and I, I, you know, I deserve to be heard. But also the flip side is that there's a lot of microaggressions towards women in a great many fields, not just tech. And so when people are putting together an event and they're putting together a panel or they're putting together speakers, they want to put forward stuff that's going to be signed off by their sponsors and signed off by the board and all the rest of it. So they play it safe. And so we need to break that play it safe mentality. At the same time, we really encourage and build the confidence, you know, among women when they put themselves forward for these big career moves. And I've definitely seen fee negotiations being nice and day between men saying, hey, I want to MC this event and my fee is this and you'll have women doing it for literally less than 10% the fee and thinking that's a bit of all right. So a big part of what I'm doing at the moment is being really clear, you can and you should charge this for this event. That's fascinating actually. Mm. As someone who MCs some events myself, there really is very little visibility and uh, I think it's, it's great to get people speaking very honestly about their experiences because... Mm. You know, for people who've never had experiences on panels and things before, I think it can be quite an intimidating thing. Mm, Does okay. uh, Vic ICT for Women, uh, like, are you looking at any any ways that you can help people with those sort of skills, like develop skills? Yeah, it's actually something that um, I honestly hadn't considered quite to that degree till I launched the ClickList and started processing nominations and interviewing people to be a part of it. And straight away I was going, right, for starters more people need professional headshots and it just goes on from there. The headshots is just the easy stuff, tip of the iceberg, right through to, you know, negotiating for fees, you know, the whole bit. There's so much that needs to be done. So I honestly think that the click list over the next 12 months is going to expand into a whole lot of support services and networking groups and things to really encourage people to get out there and go for it. If you're an absolute rock star in your field, own it. So have you had any people who've been nominated who uh, you've had some good conversations with and some great outcomes from? Oh, absolutely. Um, we've, I guess I, I probably can't sort of name too many names sure. just yet because a lot of them are deals where the events haven't occurred yet. Feel and all free that not sort of to stuff. name them, but yeah, just sort of to um, describe in vague. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So we've already had um, one person who's been appointed to a five-figure four-day MC project, which was straight Amazing. out of the blocks. Like, oh, that is absolutely fantastic. We know that there, oh, to, to my knowledge, there's already been six or seven big corporate bookings that have come through it, um, which are minimum four-figure booking fees. So that's been absolutely fantastic and one of the things that I've definitely found is I was really keen to be very intersectional in my sort of feminist approach to compiling this list. I wanted to, you'll generally get a reasonably good racial diversity overall with people nominating but one thing um, that I really do want to call is, out is that um, we're also having to look really hard for certain you know people and certain groups to make sure they're represented. Um, Indigenous 
um, women who are working in tech, get in touch and nominate man because we are looking for you guys um, and reaching out to groups. So I'm proactively reaching out in in certain areas. Certainly um, more from LGBTI, um, but you know groups and that kind of thing we're having to chase them and we're ha- having to look for them to make sure that they're represented fairly on the click list as well. Um, so it's been a massive learning curve, mm. like I've, I've way more than I expected. I thought it would be this low key, yeah, let's, um, you know, let's get some show reels up on, online and, you know, <laughs> make it easy for people to book people. But it's been amazing. It's been, you know, bigger than I could have expected. It's also been much more complex than I expected too. I think one thing that I was so excited about when I saw this initiative was that two people independently reached out to me and let me know that it existed, which means that your marketing is really getting out there. That's so exciting. And another thing is that I've had, uh, you know, having been in a position where I try and um, seek, you know, we try and seek as diverse um, talent as possible for this show, uh, we do know that it, the onus is sometimes put on people from, you know, various diverse backgrounds to almost represent that diversity yep. and they end up feeling really pressured and needing to recommend people mm. and uh, and sometimes also they get a little bit of backhanded, like, blame if there's not diversity. You know, people mm-hmm. who organise things say, oh, well, this person could only recommend, you know, one person and that person wasn't available, therefore we stopped trying. Yeah. So I love that, you know, having another approach, having another way can take the onus off people from diverse backgrounds. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the, the the bottom line is that, you know, minorities, you know, of all kinds, absolutely everywhere, there are microaggressions and sometimes there's just outright aggressions and it does make it much harder. And it's not dissimilar to, you know, what Camp Cope experienced with Falls Festival and stuff going, well, hey, you know, our lineup might be totally, you know, a sausage fest, but why don't you go set up an event? It's like, that's actually not the answer. (laughs) The onus is on the event organisers to get their act together. The onus is on business owners to crack open their books, make sure they're actually paying people properly, no matter, you know, what they carry around in their trousers and get on with things like it can, this can be fixed at so many different levels, not just, you know, the click list and events. Amazing. Uh, Another thing that's brilliant is that especially like I made this mistake myself earlier in my career you know I tended to think of the lack of women in technology as a pipeline issue and then some uh some more experienced women than me very kindly started to have some conversations with me about uh mid-career crises yeah. that they'd been through and it was different you know, to my experience and just having that breadth of experience spoken to mm. was really valuable to me as a woman in IT. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you know yet if, um, you know, if you're having an impact with, uh, with younger career people in, in IT seeing some of these speakers out there yet? It, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, we, we actually see that with our Go Girl event when they see, you know, 19-year-olds winning robotic awards in, on the international stage and you, you bet your butt that they're in there and they're wanting to get into it. So I, I love seeing that. And um, I just think that there's there's so much scope because until particularly, you know, young women can see themselves up there, can see themselves succeeding, you do look and you go, well, 
there's no one else doing it? Do I have to be the icebreaker myself? So it's very exciting times. So if people are starting to feel a bit inspired, hmm. would you like to shout out the website for, for it? Or I can, if you'd like. I'd love to shout it out, actually. Yeah. It's simply theclicklist.com.au. And if you'd like to nominate yourself or someone you know, please just hop on the form. We are processing literally hundreds of nominations. So there's not a lot of people up there just yet, but bear with us. It's going to be awesome very soon. It is a tremendous initiative you to be congratulated on all the work you're putting into this just oh, so you. that I can head out there and see more diverse people at events thank you no worries thank you Joe shall we cover some events that are on this week yeah let's do it what's happening I think I think this event sounds really cool. It's um, Melbourne Makers. It's design thinking for physical products. So creating a great user experience for physical products and services really requires a different approach than for digital products. So this panel discussion poses the question, how do product managers collaborate with user experience designers to build and create quality experiences in the physical world? So the night will focus on two areas of product development process. Uh, one, like the ideation phase and the other, the early validation phase. So validate, validating and testing the ideas really. Uh, Academy XI are putting on the event in partnership with Fab9, which is Melbourne's newest makerspace, which I hadn't heard of. So that'll be something for us to look into. Oh, do you know where it is? It is happening at Academy XI's offices in the city and it's on Thursday, the 5th of April from 6 to 8pm. So if you're interested in that, have a look for Academy XI. They're a great little Aussie um, learning house. So if you're into all things tech, they can often get you on your way. Cool. Hmm. Uh, another opportunity, uh, MESS, Melbourne Electronic Sound Studios, their autumn semester is available for booking now. There are 12 on-off workshops covering uh, a diverse range of topics and subjects related to the MESS collection. They have a huge uh, library of synths. Uh, there is an in introduction to modular synthesis techniques with Robin Fox, composing with electronics and acoustic instruments with Cat Hope and creating and delivering live performances for electronic artists with Kiara Kickdrum. You can find all of the information around this on mess.foundation slash autumnschool18. It's incredible the talent that people have access to right there. I mean, yeah. just being able to do a one-off workshop with Robin Fox Mess is a very special place. It's great. For people who haven't been there, the, the Mess studios have like a wealth of synthesizers and all these other sorts of like, um, you know, music creating, noise creating machines. And they're not even all out at once. Their collection's so large. Uh, but they run all sorts of workshops on on how to how to use them and how to get the best out of them and what's fascinating about them. And sometimes they get international musicians who specialise in particular gear to come in and do things. And it's just one of those things that comes out of a vibrant local community and, you know, someone has been collecting all of this gear for so long and then to have the idea of putting it in something like a, a library where people can get their hands on is just brilliant. I like it. Mm. We'd like to say a massive thank you to our guests tonight. We had Eileen Ormsby in speaking about The Darkest Web. It's uh, a true crime book and it's in all good bookstores now. We also spoke to Rowena Murray from Vic ICT for Women about the click list. And if you're a woman with experience in information computing and technology, do get to theclicklist.com.au and nominate yourself as a potential speaker, panel member, what have you. 
because we want to hear more women's voices out there. 7.59 on Triple R. We've been bite into it. Thank you, Joe, for a brilliant show. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a brilliant night and stay tuned for the International Pop Underground up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.